0: And this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Gator, a German Shepherd police dog, was fatally stabbed on Thursday when he and his human partner, along with other members of the RCMP... Today we are saddened and yet and again by, by the loss of RCMP police
1: service dog, Jago. Inside police headquarters today... A clear sign of Edmonton Police Service has been shaken by the loss of police dog quantum.
2: Serving and protecting the city can be dangerous. Monday's deadly attack on an Edmonton police dog is an example of that.
1: Police dogs uh, play an important role in the work that we do.
0: They are valuable members of our team. At that point, a police service dog was killed. They provide specialized services to keep our communities safe, and they have the ability to perform duties that we otherwise would not be able to perform. A somber procession was held today honoring a fallen police service dog. Jago was killed Thursday afternoon when he, along with the RCMP...
1: It is always difficult losing an enforcement animal.
0: RCMP and fire departments along Highway 44 paid their respects to Jago.
1: Dogs are an incredible asset to police forces. Every shift, every day, police service dogs keep Canadians safe through the detection of narcotics and explosives, the tracking and apprehension of suspects, locating evidence, and finding lost and missing persons. The career of an average police service dog lasts only seven years. By this short time span, we'll see the dog log an awful lot of hard miles on the road and in the bush. The dogs do so happily, they are bred to work and enjoy every minute of it. A police service dog is often the first officer into a building, a vehicle, down an alleyway or over a wall. Sometimes they don't make it back to their handlers alive, or more frequently they return with injuries or other traumas that shorten their careers or stay with them for the rest of their lives, limiting their ability to enjoy a much deserved retirement. Last week I was able to catch up with Ned's Wish founder and president, Stacy Talbot, a recently retired RCMP superintendent with an incredible 35 years of service behind her, including time, is the OIC of Alberta's Federal and Serious Organized Crime Unit, the Integrated National Security Enforcement Team, and the Critical Incident Program, where she had direct oversight of Alberta's ERT and police dog units. On the call was also retired RCMP dog handler and trainer, Sergeant Phil Graham, who as we will hear is a subject matter expert in the use and training of police dogs. We talked about the valuable work police service dogs do how Ned's Wish supports retired dogs from across all forces by providing financial support for medical care. It's early morning here in Vancouver. It's dark and rainy. This is episode two with Superintendent Talbot and Sergeant Graham. and Dan Coles and this is Under Reserve. With me is retired Sergeant Phil Graham, um, former member of the RCMP, and very recently retired uh, Superintendent Stacy Talbot, uh, both of whom are involved in the charity uh, Ned's Wish, which is involved in providing assistance to retired police dogs who, after uh, their careers, which we're going to hear about in a moment, um, have picked up all sorts of, well, certainly physical injuries, but I'd be curious to know if if Stacy and Phil think they pick up emotional or psychological injuries along the way. So though Phil and Stacy are both on the phone, I thought I'd start with you, Phil. Uh, you okay. were a dog handler for about 20 years, is that right?
0: Yeah. yeah, I spent most of my career in the RCMP and the dog section.
1: You actually started your career though with Peel Regional for a bit in the 80s, is that right?
0: That's correct, yeah. I was there for a couple of years before I joined the Mounties.
1: And is, uh, is there a story why you went from Peel to the Mounties? Well,
0: it's actually the dog section, and uh, right in front of me, I have uh, an old pamphlet, uh, I think that was produced in the later 70s by the RCMP, outlining what the uh, police dog service did, and I happened to pick that up when I was uh, at university in 1981, and right there, I thought that that's what I wanted to do, and uh, those that remember back to the early 80s, of course, there was a pretty severe recession, and... uh, the RCMP, along with the rest of the government, was not hiring and whatnot, so I moved on. But things changed uh, shortly thereafter, and I was able—my application was accepted—and and I went into training in the RCMP.
1: What was Peel not doing um, police dog services at the time, or just not to the level you wanted? Yeah,
0: they had uh, they had uh, four dogs at the time, and uh, Metro Toronto Police at the time had no dog section whatsoever. They didn't start theirs until the nineties. Um, so it was not near what the RCMP section was. And and the idea of being able to work throughout the country in different areas and also getting into the provincial environment was also very attractive, as opposed to just staying within the Toronto, Metro Toronto area.
1: And although you wanted to move to the Mounties and did, of course, to be a dog handler, am I right that it's not a section you can just check a box and opt into uh, right off the hop?
0: Not at all. Um, it's uh it's something you have to work at and, and you know, things have changed over the years, but uh, there was always the requirement to, you know, approach your the dog handlers that were in your area and begin what we used to call quarrying, which was essentially helping them uh with the ongoing training that's required all the time with the dogs. So kinda of getting your feet that wet that way and then getting into the raising of uh the puppies for the, the that are potentials to go into training. So you start doing that as well and build a build a file for yourself. And eventually, you work your way up the seniority line. And with good good reports, uh, eventually you'll get the chance to enter the section as
1: uh, vacancies open. And for you, this was the mid '90s. Yes, and it's uh, 1995. You get in someone's good graces. You work your way up to the appropriate level of seniority. And then, you know, what's involved from taking the leap from quarrying to actually becoming a, a police dog services member or handler?
0: Uh, well, back in the 90s, things have, have changed a little bit. Um, there was a, a pretty pretty stringent physical requirement, uh, physical standard. So uh, essentially, once you were uh, selected to go on dog handler training, which for a first time handler is about six months long. Uh, it requires you to go to the police dog service training center in Mississauga, Alberta, and, and go through the entire program with the dog. Uh, but day one is, is uh, at that time was a four mile run, a timed four mile run, as well as uh, doing a, a pair test. At the time, it was a quite different than it is now, but a physical test as well as doing several elements of the ERT physical. Do you by
1: any chance, recall what the uh, the four mile time was. For new handlers, it was 34 minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Was the the maximum time.
0: So you had to do it. So, I mean, and of course, uh, the other element is when you come into uh, Innisfil to do it, Innisfil's at about 3,000 feet above sea level. So I came in from Surrey in the lower mainland, so you have the little bit of the altitude factor working on you as well as the nervousness. but <laughs> yeah, we all went through that that at the beginning and then uh, you get partnered with a uh, potential dog that's going to be your dog, and then you you start hitting on the course, which the first couple or the first week is a little bit of classroom and a lot of bonding with your dog out on walks, and then you enter into the
1: actual training program and the dogs you're talking about. Where, where are these dogs from? Are these Canadian dogs or these European dogs?
0: Back in the 90s, there was a mixture. They were getting quite a few dogs from Europe at the time. So one of the issues or one of the problems with the program has always been the uh, the number of dogs that are removed from training. At the time, only about one in five, one in six dogs would make it through the entire training program. So it became very time intensive, especially as if you, you know got up several weeks or several months into the training, and then your dog was deemed not suitable and removed. So it basically puts you back to square one. And it was not unusual to see, you know, people stay at the training center for the better part of a year trying to get through the course, and, and it was also not uncommon to see people have to leave and give it a break and then come back again. Uh, you know, the odd guy was in training for a couple of years before they finally were able to meet the standard with the dog to get out. Uh, that's why the uh, police dog service training center—they they've really developed their own breeding program to the point now that virtually all the dogs come uh, in house. They're all bred uh, at the training center, and so it, it's it's a very much a, a self-funded, uh, self-serving program now.
1: And what sort of—I mean, I'm picturing uh, a German Shepherd but I know you've worked with uh, Belgian Malinois in the past. What sort of dogs is the RCMP breeding?
0: Uh, The RCMP breeding program is strictly German Shepherds, and they're working with the Eastern European lines. Now, you're getting out of my expertise a little bit because the the, the breeding is a science unto itself, but uh, most of the dogs that they use, uh, once a dog is established as a uh, bona fide police dog in the field and has what it takes, so to speak, uh, there's a, a variety of brood dogs that are kept Uh, at the kennels. They're farmed out to various people in the area who look after the dogs, but uh, those dogs will go through cycles where they're bred uh, with with, uh, artificial insemination using one of the uh, dogs that's out in the field uh, that's been identified as a prime candidate. So you'll generate litters that way, and of course it gets into the the genetics and whatnot, so they have to be very careful about which dogs are used and how and with all the uh inbreeding aspects but that's how it's, it's done essentially
1: and you're talking about being at the training center for six months and i and i appreciate that that some dogs wash out and i'm expecting some handlers probably wash out but do you do you leave with a dog that's going to be your dog to take back to a detachment somewhere
0: absolutely so uh the rcmp program is very much one one dog one handler and uh it's predicated on, on, on the bond with your dog. Everything comes down to that bond. And, uh, you know, the, the, the basics of what you do are, are similar, you know, and I always like to sort of compare it to the NHL where you've got a, b- a bunch of hockey players that play, play the same game, but they all do it quite differently and uh, they all have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, they all play different positions, and uh, so you have that sort of element, and it's no different with, with a police service dog. You know, my my last six years, uh, I was an instructor, a trainer at the uh, kennels. so I basically was responsible for putting on these training programs, training the handlers and dogs. So, I mean, part of the the, the trick of being a trainer is you've got different handlers with, with different characteristics and different dogs with different characteristics and you, you have to try to work with that and get them both on the same page and no two dogs are alike uh, tracking which is the most difficult thing that we do some dogs are, are hard chargers other dogs are plotters um, some dogs trail a lot as we call where where they, they'll go downwind on the scent whereas others won't so they're all unique and they all do it differently. So you have to apply a different variety of different sort of handling styles to
1: to suit the dog. Is there a uh, is there a male female element to this? I'd be curious to know. Uh,
0: historically, they were all male dogs, and uh, I know that in the
1: uh, it's probably not popular, Phil the, to say.
0: Um. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's for a variety of reasons, and it boils down to temperament, but it also boils down to dollars and cents, where if you're going to have dogs with certain characteristics and certain temperaments that potentially aren't as suitable, uh, not to say that they can't do it, but it runs into, you don't want to invest a couple months to find out that, no, they can't do it. Um, So it's... Back in the in the day, uh, it was all male dogs. They did branch in more to, into females in the uh, 2000s, but again, not not popular to say I guess. But but they ran into some problems, and and numerous females were removed from service. Hmm. Uh, but. I think some of the issues have been identified, and with the breeding, now there are some female dogs in service, uh, though I would say the proportion is 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 quite mixed and some of it just comes down to some of the natural ten- tendencies or temperaments between male and female dogs, and there are differences right
1: right You, you mentioned that tracking is the most difficult thing um, for a, for a dog to perform or learn Can you, can you tell us about? what an operational profile is. Are all police dogs trackers or is drugs or is apprehension or these different skill sets or complementing skill sets? So
0: the original police dog service program, the dogs were all multi-purpose. So within police dog service, the dogs did every single profile, except in the search profile, you're either in the the narcotics profile or the explosive profile. So the searching is the same. It's just, the, the, the target elements are different. So the dog would have to be able to perform all of the criminal apprehension profiles, either a narcotics or an explosive searching profile, the tracking profile, uh, evidence search profiles, the obedience sections, uh, person search. There's a variety of them. So the dogs would have to be able to do everything. So again, getting into the the, the breeding side of it, and the, and the, the whatnot. That's why the German Shepherd is the is the choice. Because not to say that you can't have any breed do these things, but given the characteristics of the breeds, there's a lot fewer of them. So the German Shepherds tend to have the whole package. That's why they're the, the breed of choice.
1: Right. You need you need a dog that that's smart enough or equipped enough uh, to do the tracking and the searching, but also has got the horsepower uh to do the apprehending and the grabbing.
0: Yeah, the two the two tr- the two profiles that, that are the most uh demanding and, and cause the most number of dogs to be removed from training are the tracking and the criminal apprehension. Right. So despite what people may think and whatnot, um you know your average German shepherd that's in service now would be about seventy five to eighty pounds. There's some bigger ones, there's some smaller ones. So to ask a dog that's, say, 80 pounds, that is in an unfamiliar area, not on its home territory, to go out and essentially engage some something that's two, three times its own size uh, in order to uh, affect an apprehension is asking a lot. And there are not many dogs that are mentally capable of doing that.
1: You'd have some dogs who would say, I'm just not going to that dark room. I'm not going to that car. There's an angry Um, guy swinging a baseball bat. Like, are you kidding me?
0: Exactly, the fight or flight, right? And uh, self self preservation. And dogs are very different than than humans, despite you know what everybody, (laughs) you know, the the movie aspect and everything else. They operate very differently than we do. And uh, most dogs are very territorial, and they have a confidence level. And when they're in their own familiar environment, they're very confident. But you take them out of that environment, and dogs will. Become unconfident very quickly, so it takes a special dog to be able to
1: to perform. So, Phil, you know, between the mid '90s when you become a police dog handler, and um, I gather, kind of uh, early '2000s when you become a full time trainer instructor, uh, you had a decade as a as an operational handler. Yes, and um, my notes tell me that was between uh, Surrey, Comox little bit of Alberta and uh
0: yeah I was up in northern Alberta for almost six years so and uh, Peace River so that was a, a provincial spot and I spent a lot of time there actually the the typical duration of that post was about three years so I, I did almost twice the amount of time there
1: <laughs> and when you're in Peace River um how many hundred kilometers between you and the next police dog handler
0: uh, at the time, there were only two of us in northern Alberta. The other handler was in uh, Grand Prairie. And at that time, there was a a couple of positions. There was a position in uh, eastern BC in Fort St. John. There was nothing in the Northwest Territories, So I, I ended up going up to the uh, the territories uh, multiple times as well.
1: So this, this is an assignment where you're on the road or you're in a helicopter and you're going all over a large geographical portion of Canada.
0: Yeah, and you're, you're serving primarily very small rural detachments, so not nothing of any size.
1: A lot of wide open space, a lot of wilderness, a lot of just you and your dog.
0: Yeah, and so as you, as you know, for a variety of reasons, the, the North can be a very violent and, and hostile place. So it certainly was demanding both on the handler and the dog.
1: If there's such a thing as a as a typical call or or typical sets of calls, could you speak to that?
0: Well, again, it goes back to your as we were discussing the profile. So your your typical calls are to go out and and, and track somebody that's committed a, some type of crime. Now, obviously, if it's something deemed relatively minor, then likely we wouldn't be called. So you're you're typically going to uh, you know serious assaults, homicides. You know, stabbings, shootings, armed robberies, where the suspects have fled, and uh, or car ch- car chases, that type of thing, where the suspects have, have fled, and uh, they use the dog to track them down.
1: High conflict files from the outset.
0: Yes, and, and one of the other. Uh, call not so much high conflict, but uh, your missing person call. Right. But uh, you can imagine this working, uh, doing uh, working a person search in a in a vast northern area where you've got uh, bear running around everywhere and other elements. So you have to be be very careful. So even though you don't you're not facing somebody that may be dangerous, just looking for somebody, you're certainly in a hostile environment.
1: And you got to do some cool uh, appointments, uh, G8 Olympics, even in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your your career or your skill set uh, took you some interesting events and interesting locations.
0: Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it definitely uh, a variety of different areas, um, and uh, all of them were, were unique and different. Uh, I mean when I think back to the early days, uh, I was stationed in Surrey Detachment, and I, when I got into the dog section, I went back to Surrey Detachment, but. I mean, you know, Surrey was a very, very busy place, and uh, man, uh, the, the number of the number of calls you would go on, there were nights I couldn't even get back to my truck. Um, I would be at one call, and I would be done that call, and I would jump with the dog in the back of a regular police vehicle, and they would take me to the next call. I didn't even have time to get back to my truck, and you would spend the better part of, you know, eight, ten hours doing that.
1: So this this is a lot of I mean it's a lot of miles on the human handler, but uh, and I expect this is where Ned's wish comes in. This is a lot of miles on the dogs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're they're athletes. Uh, they're, they're, I mean, we 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 run a lot. I know that uh, in my my time at the as a trainer at the kennels, even as a as a, an instructor in level one, where we're working primarily in the rural environment, I had many days with the GPS. I, I ran twenty twenty five kilometers a day. And so uh, you know that that's as a as a trainer with four teams, but still as a handler with the dog uh, I can recall in Peace River tracks that were fifteen, 20 kilometers long, and uh, the dogs are falling they're in, they're in a hostile environment constantly uh,
1: lots of injuries. and and these these are dogs that are that are jumping over things that are climbing up on things uh nicks, sprains, cuts yes, I had uh and, and they and they get attacked. Right. So I've, I've had dogs that, that have been stabbed, uh, hit in the head
0: with dent pullers, kicked, punched, picked up and thrown into walls. Uh, you name it; they take a they they take a beating. Hit by cars. Uh, you know the reality is, is you know, we had several incidents this year in the country where the police dogs uh, have been been killed on duty, and, and dogs have been routinely injured on duty it doesn't make make the news and even to the point of, of vehicle accidents where 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 dog handlers are involved in crashes and uh, I was involved in a serious crash when Ned was actually my dog and uh, when I was working in on Vancouver Island I was involved in a serious crash that uh, we were lucky to get out of but yeah handlers have had dogs kill in, in car crashes even so by the end of their service the dogs have they've had uh, a real kickbag of injuries.
1: And, and do you perceive in your experience that, that dogs wear that psychologically as well? Uh,
0: I'm can. curious. I mean, I, I have uh, no
1: idea, yeah. but if you've been so that, stabbed that, that, and kicked it, and hit by a car and have been in a car accident, are you are you the same German Shepherd you were the year before? Most are. Um, and again, that wow. goes down to the, the, the selection and the temperament of the dog, because you, you,
0: you're you're selecting a dog that's very very unique and and that's why I say very few can do do the job but they they are doing what they do I mean they're they're hunting and and they're hunters and uh, the ones that they they love it and and they're not like us I mean retirement's not in their vocabulary I mean there's a Every handler that's retired a dog, it keeps that dog with them. I mean, it the, the dog just dies a thousand deaths when you jump in the truck to go somewhere. And he can't go. I mean, that's just that kills them. I mean, they they don't want to retire. They want to keep going, and that that's in their nature. So, I mean, I know on the military side of it, and there have there are there are cases where the dogs will have a very bad experience, and uh, it can affect them psychologically. But typically, that that'll That'll come out right away, and, and within a short period of time, the dog will be removed from service. And that has happened, where dogs have had a really negative experience, and they're no longer able to work.
1: In addition to the uh, the boots on the ground, the tracking, the apprehension, Phil, I know your career took you uh, into more of my wheelhouse, into the court system, and uh, you were recognized as an expert on the provision of police dog serv- police service dog evidence. Is that right?
0: Yeah, uh, there's a variety of processes, as you're aware of, where you go through the qualification as an expert at the various different court levels in order to give expert evidence. So there's a process you have to go through and uh, the court can recognize that. Of course, the uh, the counsel involved can often waive that, but typically you do go through a process to establish what your your expertise is.
1: And, and in these cases where you're called as an expert, what is the what is the evidence that you're giving?
0: Typically, it'll be the, tra- the tracking evidence that's so crucial because the tracking evidence is such that you're able, you need to establish uh, that you followed a, an unbroken track from start to finish. The, the ultimate evidentiary value being that that track then links the, the, the suspect or suspects you catch at the end of that track to the crime scene. Right. So, uh, typically, that's how the, the prosecution or Crown is trying to establish that linkage between the two. Because, obviously, if if your, your suspects are no longer there, part of the element of proof is trying to show that they were there at some point.
1: Right. The De- defense may indicate that your dog just found a random guy in the bushes and he had nothing to do with a stolen car.
0: Yeah, and, and again, getting into the tracking aspect of it, everybody just thinks you go from point A to point B, which is far, as you get into the nuts and bolts of it, which is far from the case, and so there's a variety of handling techniques that you have to use in order to keep keep the track, and then there's a variety of things you do in the training environment to, to establish that your dog, you know, doesn't say you do things like take cross tracks or, or, or follow an animal or that
1: type of thing. Uh, Phil, you got out in 2011, and since then have been taking uh, your skill set to the private sector, largely oil and gas?
0: Yeah, oil and gas, construction, that type of thing. So essentially myself and another uh, trainer from the Police Dog Service Training Center, we we formed our own company and we providing uh, detection services, canine detection services to the private sector. So Typically, that involves your just your straight drug drug searching or narcotic searching profile, and usually you're doing it in, in restricted sites that uh, where the employer will have a an uh, drug and alcohol standard in place, and you've got. Uh, potentially workers that, that are violating those standards, and they're typically safety-sensitive jobs. So your oil sands would be typical. I've worked, uh, you know, dam construction projects in the north, uh, that type of thing. Anything where you have camp environment and construction and, and whatnot.
1: And are, and are you using retired police dogs for the services or qualified police um, dogs? Or where do you find your your civilian detection dogs? Yeah.
0: Uh, we're using the, the, the sport dogs. So my, my the first dog that I worked, uh, that I trained myself was a lab. And just to sort of deviate for a little bit, uh, back in the uh, early 2000s, the RCMP did establish a specialty dog program within the police dog services. So that involved training strictly. Uh, there were some explosive dogs, but primarily it was narcotic detection dogs, drug detection dogs, and the handlers that those dogs were given to were were often traffic, uh, traffic services members or members on uh, drug drug units. Mm-hmm. They weren't full time dog, mm-hmm. dog handlers, and the dogs strictly had the one profile. And most of those dogs in the beginning were your sport dogs, so your Labrador retrievers, your. Uh, your gold retrievers that type of thing and so in our our job in our environment here we use the sport dogs so we train them ourselves and um yeah the, my current dog is a golden retriever and there's a variety of reasons for that one of them being the high high hunt and ball drive and those type of dogs so is very good within that one dimension and also uh, working within the uh an actual work environment where you have a lot of workers uh, having a big German shepherd, say, wandering through a classroom uh, as you're searching, you might be searching the people in that classroom can create some issues with people that are scared of dogs. Whereas the um, the sport dogs are uh, very friendly and, and unassuming and, and very unthreatening.
1: The, the classroom point's interesting. Um, the big German shepherd are maybe not so big as you've described them. Um, I, I picture it being a great tool to engage with communities that you police uh, for people who like dogs and want to come up for a, a photo or a pet and then other people who, who are completely turned off by the thought of being near a big German Shepherd.
0: Yeah, yeah you get you get the mixture, but I would say generally that's one of the, the strong suits of the, of the police dog services is the majority of people really enjoy the dogs and that's where you see that with Ned's wish. I mean, at, at all the events we do, you have so much positive feedback from the public. They just love the fact that uh, these dogs are out there serving them and uh, providing service and the idea that they can sort of help them out after the fact. Uh, it, it, a lot of people really appreciate it. I mean, you're never going to get 100% of the people agreeing on anything, but I would have to say overall, the, the, the reception is very positive. People have a positive view of it.
1: Well, Phil, that's probably the cue for Stacy to step in. Uh, Stacey, I gather you ended up with um, PSD Ned.
2: I did. I was uh, extremely fortunate and grateful to uh, have Ned. Um, He was my second, not my technically second retired police dog. I had had a retired um, Parks dog that uh, prior to Ned who had uh, a similar profile. Uh, He was trained with the RCMP but served, um, in Banff, uh, with a tracking and a explosive and an avalanche profile actually. And then, um, yeah, we met because after, uh, data that was my first dog had passed and I was looking for another one. Um, Phil had Ned come about that was looking for a home in retirement and I was, uh, back ready to have another retired guy, um, with me, uh, because I, I just, uh, enjoy and I'm always in awe of the work they do that is uh, kind of woven throughout my whole career as well. So yes, I ended up with Ned and, uh, Ned was, uh, you know, as Phil says, uh, it's absolutely true. I learned so much from that dog and the, uh, unfortunate medical expenses that we incurred kind of learning and growing and dealing with, um, I remember when I first got him, uh, you know, Phil kind of said it so well. It's kind of like as a police dog, not, you know, unbeknownst to me, because I wasn't a handler, when I would go to work and leave Ned at home, even though he had some other company of some four-legged friends at home and, you know, checking in and things like that, um, he developed what we all thought were these allergies. The dog was extremely itchy. The dog was, you know, scratching and, Canting and all this stuff. And I kept taking them to the vet and said, Hey, what's, you know, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, let's try him on this food and let's try him on that. And uh, we're going to do these different things. And um, essentially I probably in at that time when I first got Ned, what was totally kind of shocking to me because I'd had about, I guess maybe three or four years from my previous dog passing until I got Ned, the cost of veterinary medicine, Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm an old horse girl, so I have, you know, I was in the horse world, and you have the vet come to the barn, and they pull out the x-ray machine, and they do what they do, and you get your bill, and now I'm like, I've got this small, well, not small, but Ned was quite large, actually, he was about a 90-pound German shepherd, but um, I take him to the small animal clinic, and it was like, holy moly, (laughs) these bills are getting to be a little bit outrageous, and... So we were dealing with allergy issues and specialty food and it was, you know, it's one of those things where you blink your eye and it's a sneaky like, oh, well, it's 300 here and it's 400 here and we do some blood work and it's 500 here and special dog food is, you know, $170 a bag. And uh, so the vet bills were piling up and um, when um, Ned was working, he had... um, which is quite common with dogs is from tracking and everything else he had, um, you know, torn his cruciate ligament. So for in humans, I guess you'd call it your ACL or something like that. And so, you know, he had a plate put in to stabilize the leg and it healed up. But, um, in his retirement, he had got a bit of an infection. And, uh, so I just got, Ned and took him to the vet and I could see he was looking and you could you could actually see a portion of the shiny plate through it Mm -hmm. and the vet said you know what the leg is stable and healed but the infection won't go away unless you actually remove the plate so he's got to have a surgery because he said otherwise you never get rid of the infection it hides behind the plate so that was a $3,500 vet bill in you know the first two weeks um, that we had him Thankfully, I have to thank Phil because he covered it for me, but that was the, you know, the start of it. And then these allergy issues that were going on and nothing, nothing that was stopping the dog from running and having fun and enjoying himself, but still the costs were, you know, starting to mount. And then about eight months into it, uh, we thought he had uh, some sort of an infection like a UTI. And... We were treating him with some antibiotics, and then I came home, and one day he was just like, out. I rush him to the vets, and they're like, he's got to have, we did an emergency ultrasound, and they're like, believe it or not, because some of these dogs get neutered a little bit later, mm-hmm. whether that was the cause of it or not, we're not sure, but he had a prostatic abscess, who would have thought? So that's a $7,500 bill. And uh, it was like, wow, these." like <laughs> it's a good thing I at the time I was a single uh you know, police officer and I uh, was working a lot of overtime right, and right. doing a bunch of different things. So I was able to afford these bills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's after that is when I finally decided I needed to get some pet insurance. But because of all his previous conditions, you know, the premium was quite hefty, but I still figured it was still worth it, um, given what we're uh, what we're up against here. And um, so, as Phil and I are talking because Phil retired Ned with me, we had this ongoing conversation and saying, you know, boy, has veterinary medicine ever taken a leap and all the work these dogs do. And like, how can anybody, regardless of your financial status, that's a, that's a big hit. Like in the five years that I had Ned, you know, we, we burned through at the very end there, probably 50 grand worth of vet bills. Now, fortunately about half the, the latter half of that was, majority of that was covered by insurance but that's a that's a pretty big um chunk for any family any individual to have to take on and you know after these dogs have served their communities and you know essentially put their lives on the line it's hard for even a family whether you were the handler or not i can't even imagine um, the handler's family, because this is your partner. You've worked yeah, with this dog yeah. for all these years. He's saved your life. You know, he's done all these great things. And then it's like, well, in order for me to even diagnose your problem, I've got to spend seven or eight grand. And, you know, that, that's that's hard to come up with. And can we even, can we do that? So that's where the idea of Ned's wish started to percolate, started to kind of, you know, can we do this? What do you think? And um, I had done a bunch of research um, with some other agencies and, and just fortunately for me, I think a big part of why we were able to be so successful with Ned's wish is I took it outside of my home agency, but luckily enough, um, I had an outstanding relationship and I worked with some awesome people and so we had a lot of support to get it off the ground um, and kind of move forward with Ned's wish. So it's one of these labor of loves that um, you know we're starting to get a lot more awareness. And Ned's wish is because it's outside of my home agency, which was the RCMP. We wanted to make sure it was our initial board of directors. Phil, of course, is is still very much connected as our advisory board and. The board of Ned's Wish, what I love about it, too, is there's only a couple of policemen. The rest of them are civilians that right. are just right. in it for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, we take care of any registered law enforcement, any accredited law enforcement dog um, that's out there, which is great because now we're growing and we just got a Toronto Police Service dog registered. We've got Chatham and Kent and, you know, different Fredericton, New Brunswick, Vancouver. Like, we've got them from one end of the country to the other, which is just outstanding.
1: So, Stacey, I mean, I guess what kind of looms large here is um, a, a police dog is is retired out at age or, or performance or injury, and I wouldn't have to put too fine a point on it, but um, the RCMP or the, the Municipal Police Service's funding for that dog dries up at some point.
2: Yes, and, you know, unfortunately, it's just as we all can appreciate tax dollars. You can only tax the public so far. And those publicly funded dollars can only go so far. And um, it's not that any one of these agencies wouldn't more than happily pay for all these costs. It's just not possible. They have to, you know, budget accordingly. And the, the dollars that they do have have to go to keeping the dogs that they do have working, working and well taken care of. So that was kind of a gap that I recognized, especially with the RCMP being so big. Right. But even with your smaller, um, municipal agencies, um, they, you know, a lot of the associations do great work. A lot of them try to support their retired dogs, but a lot of the municipals might only have a couple dogs at any given time that they're supporting and they might be able to cover the dog food or they might be able to do some routine vet care with them. But when it comes to a big ticket item, like maybe a CT scan or an MRI or something yeah. like that, yeah. um, You know, not a lot of agencies can just all of a sudden say, hey, I've got six or eight grand that I can pull out to, you know, make sure this dog gets the diagnostics. And I think that's a big piece as to where we've seen a shift in veterinary medicine, whereas right now, I, you know, somebody might give me funny looks for this, but I would say veterinary medicine is almost, if not in some cases, equal or better to human medicine. So those diagnostic tools in which they're trying to employ um, to take care of these dogs are much, you know, they're expensive. They're not uh, they're not something that you just, you know, anybody can just go. Well, I'll go get an MRI, and you know, in, in people world, that's covered through your medical, your provincial health care, sure, or yeah. whatever. Whereas in the veterinary world, is yeah, you need an MRI, but that's a six thousand dollar. Um, diagnostic tool. And, you know, we've had a lot of great successes with a lot of our registered dogs that something's come up and they needed that diagnostic imaging. And that was enough to be able to say, yeah, it's not this. We had one dog where he started to get ataxia. He was falling over. You know, the vet was kind of like, eh, I think it's probably a brain tumor. And if it is, then it's probably, you know, not a good outcome. We may have to say goodbye. But I can't say yes or no, and the only way we're going to find that out is through an MRI. Right. And so it's like, well, what do you do? And, you know, you've got somebody that's going, my God, this, this dog is still relatively young. You know, it's just retired, and, yeah. and even if, you know, and he saved my life, so what am I going to do? And that's where we can kind of step in, because then we've gone and said, okay, we'll pay for the MRI, for its medical, win, lose, or draw, you have to have these answers, and mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're at in veterinary medicine. So, um, yeah, got the MRI, doesn't have a tumor, got him on some different meds. A few months later, the dog's right is right, and enjoying his retirement life. Incredible, You know, those are the kind of things that we're here to We help out with pain medication. You know, a lot of these dogs have a lot of injuries, arthritis. Um, they've worked hard, their backs jumping in and out of a truck all the time, you know, every month they've got to have their Demaracks. They've got to have their Medicam. They've got to have something that, you know, you sound like a veterinarian, Stacy. The, <laughs> the way you're listing off pharmaceuticals
1: so authoritatively, it's incredible.
2: Well, I guess when you've been around animals your whole life and, you know, you see the claims and, you know, at Ned's Wish, we have an outstanding, uh, veterinarian that donates all her time to us. Dr. Catherine Wellsman. She is just she's uh she specializes and likes to specialize in the working dogs, the police working dogs, and she's an ER vet and we're we're so grateful to have her on our board and, and look after and she can go through and help families and sort of talk to other vets and get things, you know, if they need to have specialty stuff done. Um she's just amazing as well. So um that's why it's just I'm So grateful and fortunate for the community that sort of understands what these dogs do. And I guess if you want to back up a little bit um, into my background, having, you know, (laughs) had a lengthy time uh, in the RCMP and being able to, through all my different portfolios, have some sort of connection with the police service dogs and just see the amazing work they do and the, and the dedication and the training and what goes into that. I mean, I've had everything from your proverbial missing persons to those, you know, calls that uh, Phil was describing and having to track those uh, individuals that have committed uh, serious offenses. And, you know, to the, uh, I specialized a lot uh, for a period of time in a major crime unit. And it's always that, Um, as you can appreciate in the courts, where is the evidence? So those small article searches and where do Mm -hmm. we find the murder weapon and how, how do we connect those things? So, and who's in there doing that? Well, of course it's your police service dog that's going in there and doing a lot of that tracking and finding those articles and, uh, you know, right up to our most serious and, and high risk calls, um, having had the benefit of being a, a critical incident commander, my first question is, where's my dog? Because right. my dog's gonna give me the ground truth. My dog is my my less lethal option. Um, he's going to be on my breakout teams. You know they're just a, a critical, critical asset that you know, no law enforcement or public safety aspect um, can do without, without that service. And then when you see the weekly training that those dogs go through every week and, you know, as Phil was saying, the quarrying and how much, you know, the, the, the tracking and the scent work and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's just amazing. So being able to support those guys in their retirement, I think, uh, is extremely important. And we know that the public is behind us because you look at in Edmonton, when we lost Quanto, the Criminal Code of Canada was changed so that there is a new punishment section in the code to address if an offender, you know, harms or maims or um, kills a police service dog.
1: You know, I didn't actually know that. When was that? What year was that?
2: I want to say around 2006, somewhere in there. I could be really off, but I know Quanto actually was an Edmonton Police Service dog and he was actually, ironically, um, stabbed and killed uh, right near the parking lot of the RCMP headquarters in
1: Edmonton. Oh, terrible. You know, Stacey, hearing you speak, I think you'd be very hard-pressed to find uh, a police officer, and whether he or she's general duty or you're a critical incident commander, um, who wouldn't appreciate um, having more police dogs and probably can count on, well, hands and toes, how many times a police dog, if if it's not, you know saving their life or saving the life of someone else has made their job a heck of a lot easier.
2: Absolutely. Like it just, that's what it's all about, right? It's keeping the public safe and there's a million different ways that we do it. And, uh, you know, those, those services that those dogs provide are, are just, you know, unless you're kind of in it, you may not truly appreciate it, but, um, the services that they provide, finding loved ones, finding the elderly or children, um, you know apprehending that individual that has committed some serious offenses and getting the evidence to present in court to be able to successfully prosecute and yeah. and bring to justice some of these individuals um yeah it just it it, it speaks for itself in a lot of ways
1: stacy who who are the the people who should be adopting police dogs i mean i've i've heard from you about the the, the cost and the health consequences, but I don't imagine housing a 80-pound seven or eight-year-old German Shepherd with the uh, operational profiles that Phil's described is a house pet for everybody.
2: You're absolutely right, Dan. And to be quite honest with you, um, and I've even learned um, firsthand um, that these dogs are brought up, and Phil could probably chime in or speak to this a little bit better than I can, but based on the environment of how they're trained and brought up, they're not, at least when they first come out or retire, they're not everybody's, what you said, a house dog, because right. they do come with baggage, they do um, require some sort of expertise in recognizing what a trigger is, recognizing, and if Phil wants to jump in at any time. <laughs> sure.
0: Um I, I can I can speak to that a little bit because uh, my first dog uh, Ringo was a Malinois Belgian Shepherd, and uh, I was fortunate to start in at the time when the RCMP was using those dogs. And uh, you'll see them; people think they're German Shepherds, but they're not. They look a little different, and they are quite a different dog from a German Shepherd. Mentally, they're like a Ferrari. They 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 move like uh, they're quick like cats. They're lightning fast, and they're super athletic, and and Mentally, they can be what you call high strung. So when uh, I worked Ringo for 10 years, which is more almost double the the life of a normal service dog, um, he he couldn't go to somebody else. I I knew what he was and what his tendencies were and. The last thing any of us want to see is, is somebody getting into trouble with the dog and for an unfortunate incident to happen because the reality is that they're, you know, they're very determined dogs and, and they can do damage. So I opted just to keep him because I knew what I had and I wasn't confident letting him go to anybody else. But uh, a fellow I worked with in Surrey, another handler, he had a dog that was great, great working dog. But uh, he was the easiest going dog away from work. And he retired, no issues, and mm. went and joined the family and, and no problem at all. So it, it just comes down to it. each dog is different and each dog has had different experience, which, which as, as you talked about earlier, can impact them mentally. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, they're all different and, and some obviously need uh, more special handling than others, but 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 some of them are great. I mean, they they quite they move into their retirement years quite well.
1: Do, do most of the police dogs in your experience, Phil or Stacy, um, retire with families in the broader policing community? Is that a fair statement.
2: Absolutely, I would say that the majority, and and that's I guess one thing that I would like to clarify for you, Dan, is Ned's wish is not about adopting out. Retired police dogs, because I would say Mm -hmm. that 99% of them do stay with their um, handlers or families, if that's at all possible. Yes, we do get the odd one that, you know, for whatever reason, they've either moved on to another dog, working dog, and they just can't keep it, or the family situation or what have you. But they're usually few and far between um, in that particular case. And, um, so, yes, and they do need sort of an environment. and that I was just going to say that's kind of what I learned the hard way with Ned was when he first retired, and we had all these allergy issues. Um, in fact, what I learned about six or not six, about ten months later, is that, in fact, it was anxiety. He wasn't going to work anymore. Yeah. And he would actually chew, you know, if he'd have chewed the couch or chewed the wall, it would have been an easy fix. My brain would have went, yeah, it's anxiety. He's chewing, he's ripping, he's doing things. Instead, he was subtly self-mutilating and itching and scratching and that, um, and I didn't pick up on it right away. So, you know, a trip to the SPCA and the dog that sat there for a week that nobody wanted because he was, had no teeth in his mouth and he was a little... Jack Russell cross that was as wide as he was long um, solved that problem very easily. We adopted another rescue and the two of them became friends. You know, it was a great fix for him. So yeah, um, they do need a special, a little special environment, but you know, they um, like Phil said, a lot of them, I've got a younger one now, Frazier and you know what? I can take him to events. He's great he's awesome. But I also know like if somebody comes to the door, you put him in the kennel before you open the door because right. he still has that drive. He still has that, well, I better check you out. And <laughs> if you're not hundred percent confident, maybe you're somebody I should be concerned about. So.
1: Right. Uh, so Stacey, how many, um, dogs generally speaking is Ned's wish, uh, supporting with, you know, financial assistance for medical procedures?
2: Um, so we just registered, I think, about our 117th dog. Now, having said that, our dogs are, you know, this is for um, quality during their retirement. Right. Um, there, it's not. Sometimes it's not a long time. It's a good time and a, right. and a shorter period of time. So out of that 117, I would probably, I don't have the exact number for you, but I'd say we've got about 80 dogs, 70, 80 dogs on the books that, If anybody needs, you know, if they need medical assistance, if they need uh, anything like that, that we definitely work hard at fundraising and, you know, being able to um, look after those veterinary bills for them.
1: How can uh, anyone listening uh, support Ned's wish?
2: Well, you know, the great thing about us and what we found is works really well for us is uh, if you look at some of it is simply awareness and follow us on social media and if we have a dog in need we always post our fundraisers you know if if a dog needs medical assistance you can always you know donate that way um a lot of it is we've had so many outstanding donors that have just gone on their own and they've done different things. Some people sell challenge coins. Some people, real estate agents have donated a portion of their proceeds. Some Mm -hmm. kids, it's been wonderful to see some of these young kids go, you know what? It's my birthday and I'm going to have a party, but rather than you guys bring me gifts or do anything, I just want the proceeds to go back to Netswish. So there's a multitude of ways that you can donate to us. Um, We do, we are, just into our third year as a registered charity. So we're growing. This year we're gonna be doing some more uh for our fallen dogs last year. We lost unfortunately two police dogs and we're starting a hero's run. Last year was Jago's run. This year is Gator's. So you know you can the fun thing about these runs is we pick a distance and people can either if they're not physically there to do the run wherever it may be, you can register virtually, you can just on the day take your dog, go for a run, have some fun, whether you walk it, whether you run it, whatever you do, take some pictures, register for the run, um, those kind of things. So, you know, the really it you're only judged by your imagination and uh of what you can do to help support us. We are also just uh every year around Christmas we do our calendars. Yeah, so I've we, got one of those you know, in my office. Um, yeah. So we have that initiative as well. That if anybody, you know, is connected to somebody or can get a hold of them, um, this year we, well, we have every year. We've sold out like you blink and they're gone. So, uh, you know, there's that as well. So yeah, and then we also have a. There's some folks actually in your neck of the woods, Dan. Um, Support retired legends is a company that does um, apparel and coffee, and they donate a portion of their proceeds back to us at Ned's Wish. So if anybody is looking for some cool apparel, ball caps, t-shirts, hoodies, or canine coffee, um, you know, they do an amazing job. And they were actually born out of the fact that they had a retired police service dog that uh, had a really got a bad infection and needed an emergency surgery uh, where his vet bills were almost in the double digits and uh, they came to us and we were able to fundraise and, you know, make sure that they had the funds to pay for the surgery and everything they needed. So out of that, they created this wonderful company that they donate their proceeds back to us and showcase some of the retired dogs as well. So it's, it's just amazing um, the community that's coming forward with all of this and being able to educate the public on just what these dogs do and how they do it and how they serve them. And then in their retirement, how um, important it is that they can at least enjoy uh, as healthy and, and as long a, as a retirement as they possibly can.
1: Stacy, that's, that's moving stuff. It's important work. You guys do. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me, Phil, Stacy, both of you. Um, Appreciate your service as well. And I'm going to keep an eye out for the uh, support Retired Legends Coffee.
2: Outstanding. Well, thank you, Dan, so much for reaching in and and inviting us on the show. It's just been a wonderful opportunity.
1: If you're interested in learning more about Ned's Wish or supporting the charity, visit their website at nedswish.com, grab a calendar, and follow them on Instagram at wish. You can also pick up a bag of coffee or travel mug from Support Retired Legends, a company dedicated to making coffee and apparel to honour retired police dogs from across Canada, and all proceeds are donated to Ned's Wish. Check them out at supportretiredlegends.com or on Instagram at support underscore retired legends. Next week on the show is history professor Dr. Barbara Messamore. The good professor and I are going to discuss the role of the Crown in Canada. If you work in law enforcement or the administration of justice more broadly, chances are at some point in your career you've sworn allegiance to the Queen, worked out of a building that has her picture prominently displayed, or like me, work opposite counsel who represent the Crown's interest in the Canadian justice system. Dr. Messamore is going to fill me in on what powers still reside with the Crown and why its role in Canada remains important. Until then, we're under reserve.